lot of the reason why we're so embattled has to do with fear. When my brother was first put on a locked ward, diagnosed as bipolar, and told, and our terrified parents were told, not just here is a diagnosis, but if you don't adhere to the medication, you will likely kill yourself. You can imagine how terrified our family was really presented with no complexity whatsoever. They were presented with an either-or, which had the starkest turn. You're listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast where experts share experiences and the latest thinking on mental health and psychology. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Gabe Howard, and calling into the show today, we have Daniel Bergner, Daniel is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and the author of six nonfiction books and one novel. After his brother was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, Daniel set out to better understand the thinking behind modern psychiatry. What he learned became the basis for his latest book, The Mind and the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains, and The Search for Our Psyches. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Now, longtime listeners of the podcast know that I live with bipolar disorder and I manage my symptoms with therapy and psychiatric medications. Now, I'm I'm only bringing this up because many people feel that because I use modern psychiatry to treat my illness, I must be biased. But here's the thing. I believe we can do better. It's galling to me that people think that just because medication has, you know, helped save lives or helped me live a good life, that that's it. We should just be done investigating it really seems like the two camps are big pharma is evil and forcing medication that we don't need on us and all medication is bad or medications are are sent from above they're they're miracle drugs and we all should be taking them because they're just they're just incredible and without flaw and yours is one of the first books that i read that that really did move us towards the middle you took the very nuanced approach why do you think that is? Why is this happening? Why are we at odds in this way? And what can we do to move towards the middle? Right. First of all, I'm really glad you led with that personal note, because I, too, want to say that even though my book questions some of the dogma, some of the assumptions around modern, very much medicalized psychiatry, I still don't want to be misinterpreted as reaching to people to abandon their medication, that would be so arrogant and misguided of me. So I really want to clarify that up front. Now, why have we kind of run into walls when it comes to treating the mind, treating our psychiatric conditions with medication? And I should say that, you know, I was told by neuroscientist after neuroscientist, people have spent decades devoted their careers to finding better better medications that we really haven't progressed in that regard in at least half a century. So you were asking why. I would say there may be kind of fundamental problem involved, and that is we've long been taught that our brains and our minds are the same thing. I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure neuroscientists are any longer clinging to that idea. It's a complicated issue, but one really prominent neuroscientist talked to me this way. He said, look, any other organ in the body, I can take out a little piece of it. I can even take out a cell 
and show you that it's doing what the organ does. So a heart cell, for instance, pumps, and you can Google this quickly and find it. That's not true with the brain. Our neurons don't think. They don't create mood. There are 100 billion of them with 100 trillion approximately connections, and there just may be a huge, maybe almost infinite difference between our brains and any other organ. And that may help to explain why we've run into these walls when it comes to improving on our psychiatric medication. I read a lot of different things that you wrote in preparation for this interview, and I'm not 100% sure where this one comes from. But what you basically say is that that neuroscientists and the medical community, they, they really need to start off every sentence with, we don't know, we're not sure, we have a lot to learn, we suspect. And that's not really happening. They, they say it very authoritatively, like, we know this is fact, this is what we're going to do. And it, that, of course, is problematic, right? Because I believe that, that people believe that this is settled science and settled fact, that if we would just do A, we would get B 100% of the time. And that causes mass confusion you know, in, in society. And ultimately, I, I believe that that contributes to the stigma against people living with mental illness. I agree with you. I tried to do this in the book in two ways. One is by telling my brother's complex story, by telling Caroline's complex story, and she's someone who has suffered the worst, what we all fear, you know, voices telling her to harm herself, to harm others, really her life falling apart completely, and medication in her case, and this is probably true in roughly 50% of cases where people really hear relentless voices, medication in her case being both futile and, and really damaging. But finally, through a, this very dramatic journey, leading a movement to help us think in alternative ways. So her story, my brother's story, the story of David, who in a much more common way is, um, well, first of all, he's an amazing civil rights litigator. He's at the top of the field. He's argued in front of the Supreme Court, but suffers depression, suffers anxiety, decides to take medication, and that leads to all sorts of difficulty, which he's only now emerging from. So there are those personal stories, and then there are the stories of the scientists. I just want to give them their due. Talking to Donald Goff, who's this amazing researcher into psychosis, was just revelatory to me because fascinating, fascinating work. So while leading neuroscientists are saying, hey, actually, we don't know, we profoundly don't know, still somehow what's being broadcast to the public is we do know. And what, what we see are advertisements telling us, hey, here's the pill, solve your psychiatric problem. Go on the National Institute of Mental Health website and you'll see the old simplistic explanations with the medical solutions presented. It's a brain split. When I first started out on this project, there was a lead opinion piece in the New England Journal of Medicine that just said biological psychiatry has really run into dead ends. But despite that kind of insider knowledge, and I think this is both 
psychiatry that needs to be held accountable, and of course, the pharmaceutical industry that needs to be held accountable for this, the public still clings to the simple solution. And maybe, maybe we're all kind of at fault, because if you think back to how terrified our parents were, my brothers and my parents were, what they wanted was a quick fix. They wanted someone to say, hey, we've got this under control. And maybe we all want that so badly that we're willing to tell ourselves a story that's just not quite accurate. I'm really interested in what you said about people seeing the the medical establishment as the ultimate authority. Because on one hand, as we learned from COVID, I, I wish that more people looked at the medical establishment as the ultimate authority. Perhaps, you know, less people would have would have died, less people would have been sick, and we would have gotten out of the pandemic faster. On the other hand, I know as somebody living with bipolar disorder, it, it really is very paternalistic. Be med compliant and you'll do okay. Follow my orders and you'll be okay. And I'm I'm really fond of saying that, you know, that whole phrase, be med compliant and you will be well is 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 so missing the mark because of course med compliancy isn't what makes you well. Uh, being med compliant on the correct medications that are doing what they need to do, alleviating the symptoms that they need to alleviate, that that is what can possibly make you well. But the the part about be med compliant puts the onus completely on the patient. The part about be med compliant on the correct medication, well that that shares some responsibility with with your prescriber, with your doctor. It really does seem like the discussions around this are always, well, the medical establishment is doing the best that they can. Well, my mind's going in two directions. One, that word compliant is really disturbing to me, having spent so much time, you know, now talking to my brother in order to be able to tell the story, talking to Caroline, talking to David, because not only does it put tremendous onus on the individual, but it also assumes a great deal of, in fact, a kind of absolute knowledge on the part of the practitioner. And we just don't have that. And that's a kind of a good segue to talking about the particular researchers that I spent so much time with. I was fascinated by their work. I feel deeply indebted to them because although I had some background in this field, I really depended on their patients as teachers and on their reflectiveness, their willingness to acknowledge the lack of absolute authority, the deep lack of absolute knowledge that the profession actually possesses. You know, I would say to listeners, come with me and through me, through this book, to the lab hear the voices of these neuroscientists and you'll hear sort of behind the screen what the reality is about our fragile and imperfect knowledge. As one of the leading U.S. researchers put it, we need epistemological humility. That was his term. We need to acknowledge our not knowing in order to be able to address the people, the individuals who come to us. So, I mean, it's just so ironic for you to be talking about compliance. It sounds like at best a kind of imposition from above. And it's why should that be? Here you are having a more than cogent conversation. Do you not have some significant, I would say, role in thinking about and, and determining 
your own treatment. Of course you do. And so that idea of compliance is just far too diminishing of the individual. It's really fascinating to me because there is no blood test, right? I I can't go into my psychiatrist, have them draw blood or run a culture or send bodily fluids or skin samples or anything off into a lab and get something back that says Gabe Howard has bipolar disorder. And in fact, it's type one. And in fact, he experiences psychosis and none of that happens. All of the information that psychiatry uses is from observation. They they gather data points. They 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 put them up against, you know, in in America, it's the DSM five Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and and there is where they get the diagnosis, and then they treat it with therapy, medication, and then they look to see if the symptoms alleviate. Right? That's a that's a big cumbersome way of saying they're watching the patient, they're seeing what happens, and they're they're tailoring their approach based on that information. And then the very next sentence is, uh, well, and we tell them what to do. There's no partnership there. I'm always curious about this because, uh, again, medication very much works for me. I, I I am living way better not believing that demons live under my bed and are chasing me. And I, my life is just so improved with a diagnosis and with coping skills and with therapy and with medication. And yet I'm so annoyed. I'm going to go with annoyed, Daniel, at this idea that it's not seen as a partnership between Gabe and his doctor. It's not seen as a partnership between patient and provider. It's seen as uh, the doctor made all the decisions, told me what to do. And because I listened, because the patient listened, they got well. In their own description of how this works, you would think that there would be a very important push and need to partner with the patient to make sure that we can move this forward. And yet that does seem to be lacking in in modern psychiatry. I think it's largely lacking. Of course, there are psychiatrists who do enter into that partnership. But I'll talk a little bit about my brother. So he's diagnosed. We have the hospital records. Some of the behaviors certainly fit conventional psychiatry's criteria of severe bipolar. So he takes his medication for several years. He's an aspiring musician and dancer at the time, and he just can't. It's just untenable for him that medication causes tremors. He feels like it leaves him with the feeling of a blanket on his brain, as he puts it. And so he goes off, and there are repercussions. There are setbacks. He spends another stint on a locked psychiatric ward. He's arrested multiple times. He is homeless for a while. But flashing forward, it's been decades now, and you know he lives a really deeply meaningful and flourishing life. That life is both spiritual and musical. I think it's a very poignant and dramatic life. But I, I've asked him, what would you have wanted in that first time, that first time on a locked ward? What would you have wanted from practitioners? And he will point to a rabbinic parable. And it involves a sage trying to help a prince who believes that he, the prince, is a turkey. And it's the parable of the turkey prince. And the sage gets under the royal dinner table where the turkey prince is insisting on sitting naked and eating only crumbs that drop from the table. And by getting under the table, By listening there rather than from above, the sage is able 
to help the Turkey Prince rejoin the community. And my brother will just say, I wanted someone to get under the table with me. And I think that is all too rarely done by conventional psychiatry. What would you have liked to have seen done differently with your brother's care? Because it sounds like in the beginning, it was a very bad experience. Yeah, it was typical of what we've talked about, that experience of an authority sort of looking down, judging from outside and above. It's worth saying that this was in the early 80s when the biomedical view of psychiatry was first taking full hold. So there was tremendous faith within the profession and within the pharmaceutical industry that our psychiatric issues, even our most problematic ones, could be successfully, consistently addressed with medication. Talk about either or, there was only one side of that, in a sense, available. And he was on the receiving end of that very authoritative vision. I would go with what he has said, which is he would have benefited by a much more nuanced approach, an approach that really listened, and that is direly rare, I'd say still, in the practice of psychiatry. We're so sure, again, returning to that either or theme that sort of we on the supposedly sane side of things are seeing clearly and those with psychiatric conditions are somehow unable to have insight into themselves. That having spent several years now working on this book and not only with my brother, but with people with a range of conditions and a range of practitioners, that idea of lack of insight is just not accurate. As you probably know, even people beset with, you know, the worst kind, the most difficult kind of suffering are still generally cycling in and out of that. Even if we want to accept conventional psychiatry's terms, and I do want to question them, but even if we fully accept them, we need to recognize there's lucidity there. There's what anyone would call rational thought there for periods, and then periods where that falls away. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com. Gabe Howard here to tell you about the Inside Bipolar podcast from Healthline Media. He does the show with me. Dr. Nicole Washington, a board-certified psychiatrist. That's right. A guy living with bipolar and a psychiatrist team up to discuss living well with bipolar disorder. Listen now on your favorite podcast player or visit psychcentral.com slash IBP to learn more. Subscribe now so you don't miss out. 
And we're back with the author of The Mind and the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains, and The Search for Our Psyches, Daniel Bergner. I think of these stereotypical thoughts uh, surrounding mental illness. It's, it's always that person rocking back and forth in a corner. They're, they're shaking. They, they, they look scary. Their tongue is darting in and out. And what many people don't realize is that that's not a symptom of any mental illness. That's a symptom of a treatment for mental illness. It's, it's tardive dyskinesia, and it's the side effect of some psychotic medications. And it's become so wrapped up in, well, that's what mentally ill people look like. And I, I always use the example of cancer doesn't make your hair fall out. The treatment for cancer makes your hair fall out. And I think society understands that. Society understands that treating cancer means that you could go bald. But society doesn't understand that treating psychosis, treating schizophrenia, taking antipsychotic medications can make you do these things that we believe make you look crazy. And that really makes people stop and think, well, now, wait a minute, that that thing that I'm afraid of, that behavior that you're doing that I don't like is because you're treating your illness. They believe that that scary motion, the rocking back and forth, the tongue darting, they believe that that's proof that you're not treating your mental illness. Exactly right. Misconceptions are vast, and that area is one of the most fraught areas of misconception. Yes, a lot of the side effects get misinterpreted as the disorder itself, when in fact, it's the antipsychotic medication causing that person on the subway to be moving in such a bizarre way. The tongue darting, the herky-jerkiness, and sometimes with akathisia, as it's been described to me, it's like the feeling that a puppeteer has control of your body and you're trying to fight the force of those strings that are being pulled every which way. That's the medication, not the disease. And you can imagine when you see that person, you're frightened because that person is acting in a strange way that if they're big and, and physically imposing, that's going to start to feel scary to you. That's often not the disorder. That's often the medication. Now, this is a really of the moment topic because there's a movement on to go back to that word you used earlier, compliance, to not just suggest compliance, but make compliance legally mandatory. That is, you absolutely have to take your medication. The repercussion would be put someone in prison if they don't. But this is before. This is a considered a preventative measure. I think that takes us into really difficult, possibly societally dangerous terrain where we're deciding that we can legally mandate treatment of the mind. I'm just not sure that, you know, our much valued traditions of protecting civil rights and abide by that. I think we would be stepping over a line as much as it's tempting, but I would beg people to think more complexly than the either ors that lead to that kind of thinking, because to circle back, as you say, those antipsychotic medications can take a real toll. 
It's always fascinating to me that when it comes to taking somebody's civil rights away, we're like, well, they lack insight. They they don't understand what's going on. We must step in. They cannot help themselves, so we can order them to do the following things. And then in the same talking points, we say things like, well, it doesn't work if you don't want it to work. Therapy only works if you participate. Uh, you know, there, there's so many of them. I could, I could just read them off a list. Uh, and, and finally, what really gets me as a person who lives with bipolar disorder is uh, this lack of insight is always used to take away our rights, but it's never used as a mitigating circumstance to divert us from prison. For example, we we never lack insight to avoid, you know, going to prison. It, it's you can probably hear it in my voice a little bit. It's it's just so incredibly unfair. Gabe, you have no rights because you lack insight. Okay, well, I did something wrong. Right, you're going to have to pay the consequences. You know, you've got to stand up and take responsibility for your actions. Well, but I thought I lacked insight. No, 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 you only lack insights over here. All of that said, there are people who 100% cannot help themselves. And and let's move away from mental illness for a moment. In physical health, we understand that if you are unconscious, right? If, if you and I are doing this interview right now, if you lose consciousness, Daniel, you have passed out. I know that I need to help you. I can't ask for your consent. I, I can't wait for you to participate. You are unconscious and I know that I need to help you. Now, as soon as you regain consciousness and I say, Daniel, do you see me? And you say, yes, Gabe, I see you. What happened? I now know unequivocally that you have regained consciousness. You now, again, are able to participate in your own care. That's very well understood on the physical health side. Over on the mental health side, we, we have all of these robust conversations to when somebody lacks insight and we need to step in and manage their care for them. But then I ask one follow-up question. When do they regain that insight? What is the equivalent of regaining consciousness? And nobody seems to know. They're like, well... You know, if they start doing better, well, I mean, if they, I mean, if they get a job, definitely. Well, if, if, if they're compliant, if they do what we say, so if they follow your orders, they have insight. And if they don't follow your orders, they lack insight. So a couple of things. One, I really hope listeners will read Caroline's story in my book because it addresses so much of this, speaks to this exactly, because she is someone who's been in that very, very, very dark place that psychiatry would label as lacking in insight. And yet here she is, I think, illuminating for all of us a new way of thinking about these questions. The other thing I want to say, this goes back to our theme of either or. What if we didn't think about medication itself as an either or proposition. What I mean by that is this. Many, and I'd say safely, most psychiatrists are going to hear a person's psychotic symptoms and think, I need to stamp that out and I need to stamp it out permanently. Here's the best, the optimal dose of this powerful antipsychotic. Yes, it may cause side effects, but those are worth enduring. Of course, the psychiatrist doesn't have to endure them. Those are worth enduring to stamp out or attempt to eliminate the symptoms of psychosis, the voices, the delusions, et cetera. What if we do something different? And I've talked with compelling people who've suffered and, and who've come to this kind of miraculously through very nuanced psychiatrists. What if we think about the medication as either temporary 
or has dialed down, has calibrated such that the voices aren't going to completely go away, but they're going to be more manageable thanks partly to the medication and then thanks to whatever form of therapy or in Caroline's case, the movement she leads, group support experiences that for shorthand here are somewhat akin to Alcoholics Anonymous. You're openly sharing experience rather than trying to avoid talking about it. The point is, what if in those difficult cases, we looked to more complex approaches to medication, again, that weren't driven by fear, but were driven by an attempt to treat the individual in a nuanced way so that that individual could manage but wouldn't suffer those really debilitating, isolating side effects. We could do this all day, Daniel, and and it, it's a fascinating conversation, and I just want people to better understand their treatment options, the limitations of treatment, what we do understand, what we don't understand, and just have a more uh, rounded view of what is happening, one that's based on reality and one that is not based on fear. I want to end on this. How is your brother doing now, and is he receiving any psychiatric treatment for his bipolar disorder? No treatment. Uh, He would question that very diagnosis. He's wonderful. I mean, he's a leader. He's pastor of of a congregation. He's a volunteer on psych wards. He helps the homeless. All the things that mark those terrifying years, the psych ward, arrest, homelessness, He has circled back now to address, and I would say, I would say he would point to three things, nothing to do with medication, that have really helped him. That would be music, that would be prayer and meditation, would be exercise, and I guess I would add one more, and that would be service, being out there connecting with people as saved him. And I'd say he done a little bit to save other people along the way. And I want to just give a reminder to everybody, if you are living with bipolar disorder or any serious and persistent mental illness, and you are taking psychiatric medications, please do not just go off cold turkey. This is a conversation that you need to have with your doctor to make sure that you are getting the best treatment that you can. We're definitely trying to provide foundational knowledge, but we are not in any way suggesting that anybody take their medical care into their own hands please have that conversation with your psychiatrist, your provider, your general practitioner, and make the decisions that are best for you. Daniel, thank you so much. Where can folks find you on the web and where can folks get your book? People can get the book, the usual places online or at your local bookstore. I encourage people, I really mean this sincerely. So my email address is on my website, danielbergner.com. Please, if you read the book, have reactions, thoughts, that you want to share questions of any kind, I'd love to hear. Thank you, everybody, for listening. My name is Gabe Howard, and I am the author of Mental Illness is an Asshole and Other Observations. I'm also a nationally recognized public speaker who could be available for your next event. You can learn more about me or get a signed copy of my book by heading over to GabeHoward.com. 
wherever you downloaded this episode, please follow or subscribe to the show. It is absolutely free. And hey, can you do me a favor? Tell your friends about this show. Sharing the show is how we grow. I will see everybody next Thursday on Inside Mental Health. You've been listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast from Healthline Media. Have a topic or guest suggestion? Email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.